Hi, I'm Steph Bastian, your host, and welcome back to Tattoo Tales Podcast. This week's guest is a special one. His name is Marcus Pacheco. Now, if you've been tattooing for a long time, you know exactly who I'm talking about. If you are part of the younger generation, perhaps, you might not know this name. Now, I think it's very important for uh, especially the younger artists to know people like him because, again, go to the roots, not to the fruits. So to understand better how things are today and why they are the way they are, we need to understand where they come from, okay? Marcus, together with other people like Guy Hutchinson, for example, is a pioneer of a certain way of tattooing. In the 90s, he really pushed the boundaries of tattooing, questioning the things, uh, the way the things were done, because he needed to express and he needed to find a way to make this tattooable. And so he did, together with other few. So he basically created the style that uh, came to be known as new school. So if today uh, we do certain things in a certain way, uh, color blending, rendering, light sources, this and that, composition, is because of people like him. So it's not that things just pop into reality. Some people work hard to make these things happen. And it's important that we give them credit and then at least we know um, who did what, right? So Marcus Pacheco, very strong influence in the 90s. You will see in Specialized Press, his name mentioned again and again and again. And this is something else that I also would, uh, I would recommend to the younger ones, right? To broaden your horizons in terms of uh, collecting information. What does that mean? Today, with tattooing, for example, but with many other things, a lot of people uh, learn about artists and styles and stuff mainly from social medias right now it's a very convenient platform you know progress is a great thing the only thing is it's not run by people that really understand this it's a free platform which is great uh, the only problem is that the people that get more exposure sometimes is not people that necessarily contribute the most or have more value more skills or more weight in within that industry it's just people that are better at marketing right nothing wrong with it the only thing is, if you would like to have an opinion that carries some weight, then you might wanna try to learn about your industry or the industry that you like, even if you're a collector or whatever, from specialized press, specialized website, run by people that have been doing this for a long time and they really understand it. Uh, so not only from social media. So I would definitely suggest you this, right? To you know, read more books and stuff like that. So I would definitely recommend you that to support also smaller independent publishers and stuff like that, that they really work hard to spread uh, information that is valuable, okay? So without any further ado, this is Marcus Pacheco. Hey, hello, ciao. Hey, nice meeting you. All right, like why? You have no idea how this, how happy this makes me to have you here, man. Like, so oh. you meet a lot. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's that's very yeah. nice. Where are you at right now? I'm in Oakland, California. Okay, just across the bridge from San Francisco. Where are you at? Italy, uh, right? I'm in Barcelona. I'm living in Barcelona, Barcelona at the moment. Yeah. Oh, nice, beautiful. So the thing is, uh, number one, I would like to tell your story, which a lot of people know plenty, but a lot of people don't. And then when I when I hear that, it's like, dude. And it happens sometimes that, you know, even not necessarily young people because, you know, technology changed. So people don't read magazines anymore and stuff like that. Oh, but yeah. Sometimes even, even people that are well accomplished in this world, they have been talking for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And then you're, you know, over dinner, you're like, Eddie Deutsch, 
never heard of him. Marcus Pacheco, don't know who he is. Like, are you for real? You know. Yeah. Well, it just it's a it goes to show how um, how thorough that information people get is. It's not very thorough, so it's good, always yeah. good to keep that in mind when when we get our information too. But yeah. there's a lot more going on out there. I accept a lot of responsibility for that because I keep a very low profile. I've never wanted, I mean, when I first started my career, I did a lot of like publishing in magazines, but even then I didn't want to do it until somebody convinced me that it was a good idea for my career. And I said, oh yeah, I'll do that. And it did, it was a good, it was a good thing for my career. Um, I just like to keep a low profile and I've always liked to just have my work speak for it, for me. And if people want to get my work, they come to get my work. Yeah. So, you know, and doing that, and I'm also not very technologically like, current <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, i'm not big on like uh i don't you know i don't do a lot on the inter internet at all um i'm not on twitter i'm not on anything so you know that's where everything pretty much exists nowadays and especially the younger generations so if i'm not there i don't exist as far as they're concerned so i understand that i mean it sucks on some level because you know everybody likes to be acknowledged for what they've done and whatever yeah. But yeah, but that's why that's why we try, or at least I try, you know, to, to put my little drop and then you know spread spread a good word. It reminds me a little bit of a uh, Mike Roper, which a lot of people also would be like, I don't know who that is. A friend, of, like a guy I work with, had a bodysuit from him. He's from Arizona and stuff. Same thing, you know. Either you had that phone number or that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's for me. It was um, uh, uh, the Dutchman up in Canada. Like I always yeah. loved his work, and I only ever would see it in real life. And then I heard that like he was really strict about like how much he worked and like he wasn't like he, he just wanted to do his work and his and, but everything I ever saw him do was beautiful. And I was like, that's that's the kind of person I want to be. Uh, and like, you know, people who know what's going on and they know what a good tattoo is, they'll know. And then people who don't. So anytime I would tattoo like a tattooer, because usually it was a tattooer that had work from him. They always get like extra props from me because like first they know who he is and then they went to Canada mm -hmm. and got tattooed by him. And like that's pretty cool because he's he's sort of under the radar too, but he's brilliant, you know. So it makes it more special somehow. But anyway, so um, the, first, I would like you know to tell your story a little bit to the people that don't know it, right? So okay. because the point is, I would say just just to give some sort of idea here. Uh, I, I heard it somewhere. I keep repeating, but I heard it somewhere else. You know, the, the thing go to the roots, not to the fruits, right? I mean, like acknowledging where things come from, not only for the sake of or because you should do it, but because it's going to make you more, uh, you know, when you have an, an opinion, that opinion has more weight, right? Because you know how yeah, things evolve, right? Yeah. And you are the perfect representation of that because, you know, if you go on, if you talk to people that know, or if you go on some, sometimes like some Reddits or something, people asking about you and some, someone will be like, oh, I got tattooed by him in the nineties, da, 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 da. The thing that comes up more often on books, you know, is pioneer, influential influence you know so that has to say with with how much you contributed to tattooing with bringing constantly pushing the bar right so i would like to start by saying your story a little bit you know like how you started how it was in those days okay so i started tattooing professionally back in 1989 in new york city in brooklyn um it was uh obviously pre you know um uh, what do you call it, uh, web and all that stuff. So it was still pretty underground. It was uh, illegal in New York at the time because it was still illegal until 1997. Um, so everybody, it was like one of those, they call it a scoff law where like people openly will break the law and the police don't care as long as you don't 
like go too far, you know? So it was like very self-policed. Everybody like did things correctly and like didn't tattoo minors or do anything stupid that would draw attention to it because then you would get trouble. As long as you like kept your nose clean, that you know, you get left alone. I actually knew a tattooer who worked like he had a studio that was just a few blocks from like a police precinct. So he tattooed a lot of cops, you know, it was that kind of thing. So it was, it was illegal, but it was kind of like, okay to do it. Um, so there wasn't like a, a lot of openness between tattooers. Everybody kind of like was very protective of their, 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 their thing. And so there wasn't like a, an opportunity for anything like an apprenticeship or anything like that. So I'm self-taught. I, I think it was 1987, 88. I can't remember exactly. You have to forgive me if my dates are off a little bit. Um, that's when I ordered my Spalding and Rogers uh, starter kit. I don't know if you've ever heard of the legendary mm -hmm. Spalding and Rogers starter kit. It's like the, the only good thing that came out of that kit were two machine frames that <laughs> were pretty good if you took everything off and rebuilt them again. But at that point, there wasn't any, any other way to start unless you had like a, a connection, you know, with other tattooers. And like, even like national, they, they, um, they sold stuff mail order, but you could only order from them if like a tattooer sponsored you. So you had to, you know, it wasn't just open for anybody. So, you know, in a lot of ways that kind of made it more interesting too, because it was like this thing that you had to kind of fight your way to get into and you had to kind of fight your way to get the things you needed. And it wasn't easy, you know, and I don't know, there's something to be said about that, making the path a little more interesting. And um, yeah, everybody wanted right yeah, yeah of course yeah it weeds out the chaff you know like if you yeah. don't really want it hard enough you're not going to get there because um you're also going to encounter people who are like i know gatekeeping has like a bad word it's like a bad word now but you know like gatekeeping like like you know like i got attitude from other tattooers who were like who is this kid you know and rightly so i mean i've actually gone back and like thank them for that in the long run because the lessons they taught me by not being really easy with me were like better for me in the long run you know, um, like I, I, I started getting tattooed by Mike McCabe. Um, he was in Manhattan at the time. And I don't know, he, he's really famous like as a historian now. I'm not sure if you, if you know his name. He's put out some really good books about like old New York tattooing and stuff. And, but he was doing some really interesting things. He wasn't like old enough to be like a traditional tattooer, but he wasn't like a young guy. I mean, back then young tattooers were like a, a bad thing. Like nobody respected young tattooers. So you couldn't really be a young tattooer. So he was like a, you know, like an adult. And I'm, I'm this like kid basically coming in there and obviously asking questions that only somebody who's learning how to tattoo would ask. So he like really like clued in pretty quickly. So I'm like, oh, what, why this, why that? Da, da, da. And then the first thing he asked me was like, do you make your own needles? And I said, no, I, I'm still ordering from wherever I was ordering from. And he just said straight up, like don't come back into my shop until you make your own needles. Don't come in here asking any more questions. And I was like, oh shit, okay. I take that kind of seriously. And so I did. Next time I went into the shop, I was like, hey, I learned how to make needles. Can I ask you questions now? You know? And so he let me ask him some questions. And then he played a funny trick on me because I started asking him about his ink formula. And I'm sure you know by now that um, <laughs> that's not something you just give away to people, right? And so like I, yeah. I was naive. I was, you know, I was I, I didn't have any guidance. I didn't have anything to go by. I was like totally doing this from zero. So I was like, how do you make your inks? And he was just like, yeah, whatever. He's like, oh, you see that bottle of red over there? He was working on somebody too at the same time. You see that bottle of red ink in that cabinet over there? Go grab it and smell it and then figure out what's in it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is so cool. So I went in there and I smelled it. And I, uh, <clears throat> I was like on the way to the train station to go back to Brooklyn. 
I went to like every like pharmacy, like, you know, store, whatever, anything that like, uh, like stuff for hair care, whatever, anything. And I'm opening up all kinds of stuff, trying to see like, what is that smell? What was that smell? I can't figure out what those smells were. You started smelling I started, everything. I was trying to figure it out because I was familiar, but I couldn't place it. Right. So I was like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's this. And I couldn't figure it out. And so the next time I went in there, because I was getting a couple of pieces from him, I was like, man, I can't figure out that. That, that the formula for the ink, you know? And he's like, oh, did I have you smell that red bottle right there? And I was like, yeah. he's like oh, that's, that's not real. I just do that. I did that to fuck with you. And I was like, shit. <laughs> um, but in the long run, you know, like I really appreciate the attitude that he, that he did. Cause he also gave, he also talked to me about like how I should respect tattooing and how um, if I, if I did, if I gave to it, it would give back to me basically. And that if I respected it, it would respect me. And if I could, if I did things right, I could have a career and, you know, live off my own, my own art. And, and I was with, I was in there with my girlfriend at the time. And he's like, yeah, you should be willing to even like uh, break up with your girlfriend and move across this country if you have to, to make it work. And it was just like funny that he would say that, like, you know, cause she's got this funny look on her face. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of did that because when I had the opportunity to move out to San Francisco at the end of 1990, um, I just like gave everything up and moved out and went across country. And back then, when you move across country, you basically like there is no internet, right? So like you're not still t- talking to everybody. You're not on the phone having conversations anymore. It's like, hey, I got your phone number. I'll try calling you once in a while. So you know, it was easy to kind of like start a whole new life, basically. And then I just, uh, you know, and, and I started working out here. I, I, what am I saying? So I moved out here because uh, to San Francisco because I had the opportunity to, uh, I had a job lined up basically because um, I'd gone up to the tattoo convention in Amjam in the winter of 90. And I was, I think that's where I first met Guy Aitchison and we were chatting about this and that. And I told him I was wanting to move out of New York and that I was either going to go to Chicago or to San Francisco. He's like, Oh, I know somewhere in San Francisco because he was in Chicago. And, you know, I understood what that meant, but like, okay, that's fine. That's cool. I mean, he helped me get a job. He's like, I know a place. So I got a job. And I just thought it was kind of funny that he's not like, Oh, move to, move to Chicago. <laughs> it, was, it was very competitive. It was still very competitive business back then. I don't know if it's still quite that competitive now. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, at the time, I understood where he was coming from, and I get it. I probably would have done the same thing. Like, oh, you want to move to New York or Boston? Hey, I know somebody from Boston or whatever. <laughs> move away from me. Uh, but um, so that was my opportunity, and I worked there for, like, three months or so uh, until I got fired by the, the manager there because she accused me of stealing money from the shop because she wanted to get rid of me and, like, lied and lied to lie all about it. And, um, but, I, like, I don't give a shit anymore because, like, it's pretty clear that I didn't, it's never, it was never true. It was yeah, a weird thing. You had to, you had to let it go, right? Eventually, you had yeah, to let I, it go. I, I, even at the time, I was just like, the, the, the woman that was the manager, she wasn't, she was kind of like a weird person. And she like lied. Like, she's telling me that I stole money. She's like, you're fired for stealing money from the shop. And I'm like, you know, I didn't do this. And I know, you know, I didn't do this. And the only reason you're even saying this is because there's a bunch of people in the waiting room. Like, this all performance. It's all bullshit. You know, I'm like, you just want to get rid of me because because you're competitive or whatever. And I was just like, that's fine. I actually don't give a shit. And I just told her off. I gave, I just said something along the lines of, I'm going to go off and do something with myself and good luck with your like mediocrity because I don't see you going anywhere. So, and I walked out feeling pretty good about it because I didn't, I mean, I, I 
I spoke to Lyle before she spoke to me because he was basically like, you know, whatever she says goes because she's the manager. I'm just giving you, letting you know that I'm backing it up. And then I spoke to him afterwards and I was just like, you know, I don't expect you to believe me. She lied to you. I never stole anything from you. I have too much respect for you. And like, honestly, like, I just hate these. I don't, I don't like these. Um, and, uh, and I was like, I get it. Like, but there will come a time where you might realize that I was telling you the truth and I'm like, I'm never going to hold it against you. You know, I understand your position. I have nothing but respect for him for whatever he did for how me. Old, how old were you? How old were you? This was when I was 23, 22. I mean, that's a pretty mature, I'm a mature attitude because, you know, it's easy to kind of get emotional and stuff. You know, before she fired, before I got fired from that place, I was already thinking I needed to move out of there because I didn't like the situation. I, she and I didn't really gel, and it it got really bad when I just I just really plainly told her one day I was like, I'm just here to work. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to like work with you professionally. Can we just please leave it at that point? Like this, this that's all. We just need to be able to work together professionally. That's it. But um, I mean, I I don't know. I don't think I was that mature when I was that young to be like, like if I look back now, so I don't know, maybe it was. Um, I still think I was in my 20s. I was pretty stupid in, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I mean, that's what you're supposed to be in the 20s, right? I mean, when is the time to be stupid, right? Exactly, exactly. Like when I told my uncle that I was moving across the country and I thought he might be like, don't do that. That's a stupid move. He was like, well, you're young enough to make stupid mistakes. And, yeah, you know, exactly. Like it won't ruin your life if you like move somewhere and you have to move again, you know, that kind of thing. I thought oh, that's pretty good. And then where did you go from there? <clears throat> so I um before the reason I got well no so I got fired for stealing from there. Right before I got fired for stealing from there, I had tattooed uh, Aaron Kane. I had met him at a convention down in Southern California right after I moved out here. And he was getting tattooed by a guy just in the hotel room and we were just like chatting and stuff. And so he came up and got tattooed. He was working down in, I think, Sacramento. Is that where he was at the time? can't remember exactly where it was at the time. Somewhere, it, you know, it was one of the Santos names that back then were like not familiar at all to me. So it was just like, oh, he lives somewhere around here. Um, I couldn't, financially, I couldn't break out and just open up a shop right off the bat like that because I was thinking about doing it. So I was like saving money to do it. But, you know, it kind of like happened sooner than I thought. So I was like, okay, I need to maybe uh, bring in a partner, a business partner for this. And so I reached out to Aaron and we wound up opening up a studio, a shop in uh, San Francisco. And it was uh, like a place that used to be a bar like in the 40s or 50s. So it's kind of like a storefront, but in the neighborhood, it was like the perfect balance of like a storefront, but still pretty quiet and, and like subdued, you know. And I did that for like a year or so, but like we conflicted a little bit. Um, and I came to a realization that I didn't, I didn't want to like myself in a situation if I wasn't 100% happy because like I moved across country to do this whole thing and like why would I do that and then like put myself in a position that I'm not happy with so I decided to open up a, a shop of my own so I didn't have a partner anymore um, so I didn't have to deal with those kind of conflicts and then I wound up renting a space that was big enough where I could have three other tattooers in there. So I uh, contacted Timothy because I was really good friends with Timothy Hoyer when I was in New York and we hung out a bit and, you know, kind of like help each other learn some of the stuff that we were kind of trying to learn. And, um, and then Elio Spagna, who was somebody who showed me like, he showed me how to like make needles, you know, like really briefly, he just like showed me, he did it and he showed me something. And I went home and tried to figure it out. 
And he's the one who gave me the, the ink formula. And he was just always really open and helpful. And he was part of like that, the, the scene in New York too. So it was kind of like this camaraderie thing too. Um, and so I offered him, and he, I think at the time he had this like dream of like coming, going to California and working for a while. And so um, it was those two guys and Jeff Rasher. And I met Jeff Rasher through Aaron when I first got out here and I'd done a bunch of work on him. And, and um, yeah, so that was our first crew. And uh, that's crazy. It's it like nice. a- it's like a dream team, <laughs> like yeah. I think it. Yeah. I think it's hard. It's hard to see the picture when you're in it because you are in the picture, you know. But when you see the of picture course. from the outside, you're like, oh, dude, these guys all together. It's like you know, like a powerhouse. Yeah, I mean, we knew that it was a pretty good thing, and we knew that at that time, the tattoo, like San Francisco, was the mecca of tattooing at the time, and we knew that that was really where a lot was happening, and that's what made it really exciting to be there too, you know. And I mean. I definitely got to work with some of the some of the best people in the business, so uh, I'm really happy about that. And and you know, like even though I like working on my own and I have my own private studio, and I kind of prefer the the amount of energy I need in doing it this way because you know, like especially owning a, a shop, there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of energy you have to put into that. And um, I'm just, you know, like, first of all, I've never been a, like a boss type person. So I never did percentage with my, with my guys. I would always just charge a room rate in this way. Like it, I'm not here to tell people like when to come to work. I'm not, I just, I don't want any business. In that. I don't want to tell people like the hours they need to keep. I don't, I didn't like when, when I did work at a street shop, that like if I didn't want to do a tattoo, like I got in trouble for it afterwards. Cause I was like, I just didn't want to do that. I figured somebody else in the shop would be better for it. Or something like that. And then, no, you tattoo everything that comes in here. You're costing me money. Da, da, da. And I was just like, oh, okay, I get that. I don't like this <laughs> at all. So I didn't, I didn't want to be put in that position. And I didn't want to put anybody else in that position. And I figured, like, you know, one of the best things that for me was to figure out my own sense of discipline as far as, like, to be a good artist and to be, like, a good tattooer. And it's the kind of thing you have to learn on your own, I think can't be for- I mean I guess it can be forced into a person like beaten into a person but I think it's better and maybe longer lasting if somebody figures out for themselves that they need to be responsible and and, and then it's just like you know I don't know anyway I think you know what I'm talking about so I didn't want to I didn't want to tell them what to do I didn't want to tell them when to do it and this way I could just go in there and do my tattooing and have a place to work and be around other artists who um you know I could talk about drawings and and we, we did a lot of like, um, cause I come from a more traditional art background. I, you know, I went to art school. I was a fine arts major at School of Visual Arts in New York. Tell me if I'm wrong, but you, you're one of those like guy actually, so for example, that you, know, you, you came from a different angle in tattooing, I guess, not like the traditional way of seeing a bit more. Yeah, yeah well, I come from a more like traditional art background. You know, like I said, I was uh, I, from like about the age of nine, I knew I was gonna be an artist. For, for a living, but I didn't know what. Um, but when I went to college, when I went to art school, I was studying to be a painter and uh, like a, just a fine artist, the fine arts uh, master, whatever degree. So a lot of my sensibilities come from that, just basic foundational art background. And, and that's the kind of thing I wanted to do in, in tattooing because at the time I didn't really see a lot. I mean, there weren't a lot of tattooers in the eighties, right? Um, especially compared to now. And, 
and I don't think I'm hurting anybody's feelings by saying there wasn't a whole lot of really artistic stuff happening as far as like what I thought. And I was also kind of a bit arrogant when I was younger because I was young and arrogant and about art and stuff. And I don't think I'm quite as arrogant now because I'm older and a little bit like more open-minded. But you know, when you're young and you're like, you're full yeah, of steam and you're like, ah, that's not real art. I'm going to do real art. Um, and I just thought like there was a lot of room for something that I could do that was my own and that I didn't have to worry about like, being original because I could just like do things that I already kind of like doing as far as like the things I like to draw and paint. And if I could figure out a way to tattoo it, then I could bring something to the table that like no one else could really do because, you know, like it's my own thing. And I thought that if, if I did it, then, you know, that would just be good for my career and I get to do some stuff that was like, unusual. And I feel like at that time there was a lot of opening up and breaking away from, because you know, like I come from like a punk rock background. I was like in the hardcore scene and stuff like tradition to me weren't really like that cool at the time. So I wasn't really into like traditional tattooing, especially at the time it was considered like the, the, the more common tattooing that was going on when I was a kid was like stereotypical, like sailors and bikers and, you know, derelicts and stuff like that. And that was like the stigma that was attached to it. And, and then I started going to like punk rock and hardcore shows and I started seeing a lot of kids with tattoos especially in hardcore and that's when I really got inspired and and I became friends with this guy who was uh 10 years older than me who's his 10 years older than me and he was covered in really cool tattoos that was the first time I'd seen anybody with like really cool tattoos like because it wasn't sleeves because back in the 80s they didn't really sleeve that much but it was like covered with pieces you know like the way they're kind of doing nowadays too really good stuff and it was like definitely better than what I was used to seeing and like he had worked from Spiderweb. I don't know if you're familiar with Spiderweb mm-hmm. from New York. Yeah. Which was very interesting character. Um, yeah, Shotzi, Shotzi was, was, uh, was telling me about stories about that. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely an art- artist in like, the, like a fringe kind of artist. You know what I mean? He brought that to tattooing. Yeah. And, then, um, and then when I turned 18, this guy, Eddie, uh, was a, the friend of mine who I met, who I became friends with. Like I became friends with him and his girlfriend. They were like older brother and sister to me because they were both older. And they were like OG, like punk rockers and stuff. So they kind of like took me under their wing and like, I got to, you know, I got inspired by a lot of like the music and stuff. And so, you know, I come from that sort of attitude. So my thing about it was like, I don't give a shit what people did before as far as like the imagery. Now the technical side is different, but like, as far as the imagery goes, I didn't give a shit about it. I don't like being a tattooer made me appreciate things like Panthers and Tigers and, you know, the sort of traditional imagery, I, I have a lot of respect for it now. But at the time, especially like, I don't know if you know this, but at the time it was like all this single needle work, like for like fine line stuff and um, like a lot of shading and coloring with a six flat. So if you can imagine what like an old sailor tattoo looks like done that way, it's not really even that nice, right? It's just like, all the appeal of like what the traditional imagery has is gone because it's all really fine outline and like soft coloring. The thing that I find really interesting about that stuff is gone in that version of it, right? So like it didn't really, I didn't see a lot of that going on until I saw like Dan Higgs doing his stuff and he was doing like, like the real traditional like aesthetic, but then he added his weirdness to it because he was like a poet, you know, and a musician. And so his thing was like not very straightforward either but he really pulled in from like the more of like the visual aesthetic of the traditional imagery. And that kind of started me on like a, a path of like understanding and appreciate that kind of stuff more. Yeah. You know um, what, like, like when you, you know, when you talk about traditional stuff, obviously 
you know, things are supposed to be done in a certain way and this and that. And, and certain right. things have their reason because of technical stuff. But like when you talk about style, uh, right. when you think about it, true innovators, like disruptors, people that come up with new stuff, I think they, they need to have, that's maybe it's easy. That's why maybe it's easier when you're younger. You need to have a little bit of that. Ah, fuck it. You know, that kind of arrogance, a little bit confidence, yeah. slash arrogance, slash, you know, you have no idea. Because otherwise, yeah. you always walk in line like you've been told. But the people that come yeah. up with new stuff, they have a, a little bit of that thing that everybody criticized. But these are the people that eventually come up with new stuff. Otherwise, you walk in the line, right? Exactly. Exactly. And the response to it was good. Like, you know, like I was finding lots of clients who wanted something different because they didn't really they didn't really respond to like what was being done and the common, not common, but like, you know, the, the normal tattooing that they saw. Um, and I think that that kind of went hand in hand. So I had a lot more opportunities to do that. And then moving to San Francisco, because when I was in New York, most people really wanted black and gray work and fine line. And I had to kind of like, I was starting to do a lot of calligraphied outlines and thicker line work and stuff like that. And people, you know, they, the, my clients responded well to it, but then they would get annoyed because they'd be walking down the street and somebody would look at the tattoo and be like, yo, that guy fucked up. That outline is so thick. <laughs> look, I got this, you can't, you know, it's so fine line, like the finest fine line, which, you know, in itself is kind of silly because it's like, there's no point in that just in itself unless it serves a purpose visually. But um, they just, you know, it was just like a, a sort of a different way to approach it. And then when I moved to California, it, everybody wanted like color, lots of color. And when I was a painter, when, when I was doing a lot of painting originally, I always did a lot of color work. And, you know, like I was super into like oil pastels and pastels and like just super color, 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 color. And so even though I appreciate and I really like doing black and gray stuff, it kind of didn't make sense that I wasn't doing a lot of color, you know, in New York. So when I came out here, it was just like, and, and a lot of people were already really more open to new ideas because, you know, they were used to having people like Ed Hardy out here and, you know, his crew and everybody else that was breaking a lot of ground. And so there was already like, you know, they were already used to people being innovative and like offering new kind of ideas, right? So I think the environment was just like ripe for that. People wanted it. And so it was really easy to be like, okay, well, this is the kind of stuff I want to do. And, and having said all that, like, I'm not the kind of person who does like one style of tattooing. It's like coming from that older, like eighties aesthetic time frame. My ideal of a good tattooer is somebody who can handle a lot of different kinds of tattooing, a lot of styles. Cause I come from that world of like, somebody comes into your shop, they want to get a tattoo. You better know how to do that tattoo. Otherwise you're going to like, they're going to walk out, you know, that kind of a mentality. And so you need to be adaptable and you need to have uh, sort of a, a wide vocabulary of like, just visually, I mean, you know, um, and, and I like mixing and matching different styles and I like to kind of keep the aesthetic within that style when I'm using it too. So like having an understanding is good that way. And, you know, like in the long run, I think also just like in general, uh, diversity is like strength and like survival, you know, like in nature and stuff. Like if, if, uh, if a species evolves into like too much of a niche, <laughs> they eventually die out and it's the yeah. ones who can adapt themselves who survive, right? So. Especially know, in tattooing, around. right? Yeah, yeah. There was a time when I was known for doing a lot of like this cubist sort of neo-cubist style stuff. And like, I, don't, I barely do any of it unless it's like an old client who wants more because, you know, they, they got tattooed for me. Like, because I get a lot of, it's funny. I, I get a, a good amount of people who like 
got tattooed by me like 20 years ago. They maybe they got a big piece on their arm or on their leg or something. They've never gotten tattooed again since then. And they've come back to me because they're like, I want my second tattoo. (laughs) You know, and I always take that. Like, I think that's really awesome. That's one of my favorite things. Because clearly, like, you know, they must like what what I did 25 years ago. They want to come back. Yeah, they had a good experience. And, you know, it's not just the tattoo. You You know, there's plenty, right? It's not just the tattoo. So they must have had a good time, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, cause I went through a period of time when I was published in a lot of magazines and like, I got a lot of fame for that. And it's, a lot of that's great. You know, I'm not going to complain. Cause like it's allowed me not to like do any advertising for the last 30 years. I just, you know, like, I don't, I don't have to work really hard at getting clients. And a lot of it is the, the sort of the, the wave that was created from that, you know, but there would be times where I'd like encounter people who were like, Oh, I saw you in a magazine. And it's just like, and like, do you like my work? Do you not my work? Do you have an opinion about that? Or is your opinion just that you recognize me from a thing? Like, it's like, to me, that's like kind of hollow. I don't want to give a shit about that. Like I'm more interested if you like my work, you know, like it's the work I care about. Yeah. And, and like, I don't want to be like dismissive of anybody, but I guess what I'm trying to say is my favorite kind of clientele to get is like, a person who doesn't know shit about me outside of like, they have a friend who got tattooed or a, a, their father. Cause I'm doing a lot of like, uh, you know, parents and their kids now, their adult kids and stuff. Yeah. And they saw it and they're like, wow, I really want some of that. That, that to me is like the purest way to get a client. There's no bullshit involved. There's no like, Oh, he's famous or this and that, which I'm not trying to poo poo or like put down at all. Cause like, like I said, like, I benefited from that fame, but I've just never been one to like that kind of attention personally. So take that for what it is. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, can you, can you think about like someone in, in those days, right. Or, you know, throughout this time, right. Who, who would be the people that you connected with the most in terms of, Oh yeah, you, you, you see what I'm going with this. And then, you know, people that isn't, was on the same wavelength kind of thing. There was a lot. There was a like I got a surprisingly good response even from like people that were like from the generation above me, people that I looked up to, you know, like people like Carrie Barber or Leo Zilueta or like Hank Schiffenbacher. Like Hanky Panky, like when I first uh, the first time I went to tattoo in Europe, I went to the Amsterdam convention. I think it was in um, I don't know, 92 or 93, something like that. And you know, like I'd read his publications and I'd read about Hank and all this stuff. And I met him for the first time and I'm like, oh my God, why is this guy so nice to me? <laughs> He's like this gruff, big dude who's like serious, very serious person. And then like, he's treating me so well, what the hell? And, and I'd get people who were, I don't know, I just, they liked what I was doing. And I guess they saw that I was like genuine about my intentions or whatever. And, um, and so the response was pretty good. You know, I found a lot of acceptance even with my older peers. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm pretty lucky that way. And uh, I'm, you know, there's like certain people who really stood out too. Who were like, like I remember when I first moved to San Francisco. There's still people a little standoffish, but like there was Leo Zulueta. I was like, hey, nice to meet you. Hey, come on over, hey. You know, and I got tattooed by him. It was one of the nicest experiences I've ever had. And um, <clears throat> and he was just like really genuinely just a nice person. And you know, you encounter some people who feel threatened by like competition, but then you encounter people who don't feel any threat at all. And it seems pretty neat. Like, um, I remember when I first met uh, uh, 
um, Philip Lou, he's just so open and he's like, he's really open to sharing with people and showing other tattooers how to do things. And like, here, use this, try that, da, 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 like just super over. And, and to me that always read as like, this guy's so fucking confident that yeah. he knows he's not going to lose anything by helping every single tattooer that knows him. Like he's not going to lose anything from that. And in his mind, he wants to improve tattooing and he's going to improve tattooing because he's sharing his like particular genius with anybody who, who cares, you know? And, and so, yeah, I, I got a lot of respect for that because it just shows confidence. So, and he yeah. was the most confident. I, I remember the, one of the first times I was sitting watching him tattooing and he was tattooing like these big Japanese long flames on this guy's arm and talk about confidence. He would like dip, he just like dip some ink and go right at the bottom, straight up and straight back down in one fell swoop, just every single time. I was just like, holy shit. I was like, yeah, you've done a lot of flames, haven't you? And he's like, yeah, I've tattooed a lot of flames. <laughs> I mean, he's it been just, tattooing since he was like, what, three years old? Yeah. I think it was 13 or 12, uh, he said. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it was just like, he, he just had it in his wrist. You know, it was just, it was already there. He just had to, and he just drew it on with a real rough sketch, you know? And it was just like flawless and and confident because you have to have confidence to be able to do it. You know, it's like, I'm sure you, you, you've encountered people who were like trepidatious or like yeah. have a lack of confidence and they'll just stumble around a lot because on some level, even if you don't really like, I mean, if you have doubts, you kind of have to like, at least when you're tattooing, you have to be like, yeah, I can do this, you know, and feel it for real. Otherwise yeah. you make mistakes. Cause you know, I think tattooing is probably one of the easiest things to mess up, you know, as far as like art goes, like it's, it's not an easy medium to learn. And it's a really easy thing. Then there's so many different variables that it's really easy to do wrong. You know? Yeah, it's not so. just a, it's not all about you. And when I say that, I mean, like, if you have one paper that you know, you have one paint that you know, they, they, they behave always the same. But that's the yeah. thing, skin are always different. You don't know what the person is going to do. You don't know how they eat or sleep or whatever. There are so exactly. many things that it's outside of your control, right? Exactly. And, and a lot of things in your control too, you know? Um, one of the sort of like double-edged sword blessings that I had was when I first started tattooing, I didn't have any guidance. So like I chewed up a lot of skin on friends and I think I left some scar tissue behind on a couple of friends. Um, but the shock of, of seeing that, you know, like my friends like, Whoa, it's, it's kind of not healing that good. You know? And I'm just like, you know, like <laughs> scared the shit out of me to the point where I had to be like, I really need to figure this out on a technical level because I don't want to do that. And it's also counterproductive too, because if you spend a bunch of time putting a bunch of ink in and it heals bad enough where it pushes it out or parts of it out, then it's like, why, why are you wasting your time doing that? It's, it's yeah. just going to push it out. And, and one of my points of pride is that like, I have some of the fastest healing, smoothest healing tattooing that I ever encounter. I mean, it's like a small thing, but you know, you know, you were talking about like uh, figuring stuff out, you know, at, at, you know, when we, when you started, you said that some people didn't make it easy for you. So you had to figure it out yourself. Right. And then yeah. in that, I think to some extent, and of course there are different ways, to, you know, but to some extent there is a lot of value because for example, when you said before, uh, in terms of art, I just need to figure out how to make, how to be able to tattoo this, right? But that resourcefulness, I think that you had it only because you went through the other stuff. Like, so you're used to this mental process of, I'm comfortable with the fact that I don't know this, but I can figure it out. As opposed to people that, right. you know, if you have it easy all the time, then you're always like, 
oh, I need someone to tell me this or to give me this. And then you're powerless. Right? So I think that's kind of like the... It also makes me really, really appreciate information because like when you can't figure something out and somebody has information to share with you, and this is like, again, before the internet, so I couldn't just Google like, oh, how do I, how far do I set a needle out? So like when I got tattooed by my profeto and he was generous enough to ask me like, well, what kind of problems are you having? Because I was like, yeah, I can't, I can't get, I don't know what's going on. Needles bouncing all over the skin when I tattoo. And so he just asked me a couple of technical questions. How far out do you set your needle? I'm like, I don't really know. Am I supposed to keep an eye on that? Is that part of like how I set it up? And he's like, yeah, he needs to really, it needs to be very controlled. You know, and he's just some very, very basics. We're talking like when I first just got the kit and I'm just like trying to tattoo myself, you know? And, um, and so, but like to this day, I really appreciate that, that he, it's a small thing, but like I learned how to set my needle depth because he told me that I should do that, you know? And, I think as, as much as we get like information and it's good to have more information in our fingertips, I think it kind of like, we lost some value of like how valuable that information is and like how special it is when people share information with each other. And I think that's, I'm not like trying to sound like an old, you know, whatever, an old man lamenting about the past, but I think there's something good to be said about that. And I know that for me, I can name like, different situations like like you know I use contact paper to take tracings off the skin you know like when I'm getting ready to do a tattoo I'll draw on the skin with pens and I'll take the clear contact paper and I'll put it on there and I'll pull it, an imprint off so I have like a an image of it and then I'll take photos of those lines that I drew on the arm so now I have like a, a photo version of like the map of like everything so when I draw it I know how it's going to fit and I got that from from uh, Nick Tattoo in Zurich, and he showed me how to use that stuff. And he got it from Philip uh, Felix Liu, who showed him how to do that. And like, I can tell you where I've learned certain little things and who they got it from, you know. And like, maybe that's not the most important thing in the world, but I find that kind of stuff fascinating, and I think that shit's important. And you know, like I'm grateful to that because that, that was a game changer for me, you know, because like I do a lot of cover ups. I don't know if you know that that's like a specialty of mine. Like I will cover anything up. I will never say no to a cover up. I don't care how hard it is. I can cover it. There's something we could do. And and in order, in order for me to really be good at that is like I have to get a really good tracing of like what was there already. And so like I'll just sit there and with a pen and I'll just trace all the lines and everything. And then I'll take an image off this. And I have the whole thing mapped out so that I know when I'm drawing it, like, you know, how to like properly design it. And it just made my life so much easier. And, and I couldn't believe what a sort of straightforward idea was. I was like, oh my God, that's so great. I could see like, holy shit, this is going to like, you know, it's going to change my life. And I'll tell you how he did, how he showed me too. He was, he was getting ready to tattoo a dragon. He's really like well known for his dragons, right? His Japanese stuff. Yeah. Shit, right? So he like sketched on with like a red pen whatever because it was like across the collarbone and this area here so it's a really weird topography and so he just made it fit really nice like a really nice simple sketch he sketched on like the, the head and the, the basic body and he took the plastic stuff and just pulled off that sketch right on put it on a piece of tracing paper went over to his drawing uh board and like did a nice drawing a nice line drawing of it you know like using that as the basis and didn't wipe off the pen marks right made the stencil and used the pen that he, as the sketch that he, as the location thing and then he put the stencil on top of that and then it was perfect like a nice stencil that he didn't have to worry about, like wiping off because he was working on all these weird areas and, and it was just like when, when you saw that your mind went like 
I was so impressed and I was just like, holy shit, I could, this is going to literally, it's going to change my life. This is going to be like a game changer for me. And I've used it ever since. And, and it's those little things and I'll always be grateful for that, you know? And like, even just like, I don't know, the memory of being in Switzerland and like being in a shop and going through that whole thing. It's, it's, it's in there. You know what I mean? It's like having a photograph or something, but, but different. Right. And it marks those moments. So I don't know. I, I, I'm really out of touch with the modern tattoo world. So I don't really know what it's like for you know, tattoo now. I don't know how connected they are with each other. I don't know how open or closed they are with each other. Um, I'm just hoping that, that there's still like a, a reverence for the craft, you know, cause that's the one thing I would hate to like, I don't know. Like I was, I was taught to really revere it and to think of it as a very special thing. And I do think of it as a special thing. And part of it is because people have reverence for it. It's like, it has to, you know, people don't give a shit anymore. It's, it's done and that's it. <clears throat> like I've always felt like Japanese culture was really good with a lot of the traditions, like how they, like there's still people now that make uh, traditional swords, right? Nobody really like uses them except for their practice or, or whatever it is. It's not like they fight wars with swords, but there's still a sword culture and there's still uh, swordsmiths. And then, you know, it's still, they'll still spend six months making a sword from beginning to end, you know, and they'll still do it the same way they did it, you know, hundreds of years ago. And they'll do it probably the same way they, their grandfather was doing it because they've handed it down, right? And they almost treat it like a religion. Every little aspect of it is so codified. And, and, and in a way, it seems really regimented. And I, as a younger person, I used to think that's really regimented. I don't really like thinking about things that way. But now as an older adult, I really feel like that's how things survive. You know, if you, if you put it to a point where it's like, not quite religious, cause I don't really want to go there, but you know, almost halfway there, like this, this is thin and we, everybody loves it and, and thinks of it as a high thing. It's a, it's a, you it's know, like worshiping it. Like, it's like a, a little bit of worship, a little bit of just, yeah. I, I don't know how to say that, but I think you understand what I mean. But that also is it like, it helps the craft because if you love a thing, you'll protect it and you'll do whatever you can to make sure that it's uh it's there after you're gone kind of thing um like we're in this continuum you know tattooing has been around for a long time and we're just doing it while we're here and then people are going to be doing it after we're gone and it'll probably be around for another if we're around for another thousand years it'll probably be around for a couple thousand years and the reason it will or won't it depends on like how we treat it now right so yeah I mean, I'd like to think that other, other people can, you know, when they're like 19 and 20 years old and they see like, oh my God, that's so cool. Maybe I want to do that, that they'll actually like be able to pursue it if it's something they really want to do. Yeah. 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 That's the kind of stuff that, you know, I like to try to give my little tiny platform, you know, to people like yourself. So then hopefully, you know, the younger people, which often, you know, when I talk to them, they're very interested, at least a segment of it, you know? And they can really benefit from hearing this because it kind of gives, no, it, no, it kind of, it gives a sense of direction. Be like, ah, oh, right. I kind of thought, but yeah, this really makes sense. Okay, cool. And it kind of sticks in their mind, you know? So yeah, thank you for, uh, yeah. for that. I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in that because there were things that I used to hear when I was really young that maybe didn't like have the impact then, but like years later, it applied to my life. And that memory of that lesson was still there. And I was like, oh, I get it now, you know? And so, you know, sometimes you just gotta plant seeds and they yeah. grow when they grow, but at least they're there and they have that potential. So and that, what what kind of stuff are you into today? You mean like style-wise specifically? 
No, in, no, in general, really. You know, like oh, like, you mean like yeah. besides tattooing or yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean besides tattooing, I, I guess I would call myself a maker. I like making stuff. I paint, but I also like I spend an equal amount of time like just building and fabricating things. Um, I feel like if sometimes I just feel like I need to have something to do with my hands, otherwise my brain gets a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Um and. And so I, you know, like I do my work stuff and I do stuff that I like have to be responsible for, but I also need to have like projects that I'm not responsible for. They're just things I can do whenever I feel like it. But then I have like a short attention span. So I can wind up having like eight or nine different things that I'm working on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so like I work on a little thing here and I'm working on a little thing there, a little bit there. And then usually like, of course, like work responsibilities take precedence over everything. But it's also stuff that I don't want to do like on a schedule because that's what I do for work. So it's like, yeah. you know, like one thing I like doing besides, uh, you know, like I, I, I'm into like machining a little bit, um, but I also just like making stuff for fun. So like the fun stuff I like making is like, um, I'm really into sci-fi stuff. And when I was a little kid, I wanted to like make spaceships and, and do special effects and stuff back when it was all like pre-computer stuff. I mean, I was nine years old, so this wasn't like a plan. It was just like, <laughs> after I saw Star Wars, I, want, I was like, I want to make spaceships. <laughs> and so I'm, I've always been like a sci-fi nerd. And I, um, and I like making, I like fabricating like scratch built like spaceships or robots and stuff. Um, and especially during like COVID when I had a lot of time to not work <laughs> when I wasn't working because I couldn't work for like nine or 10 months. Um, I just started fabricating more and I set like certain goals, like, uh, cause I, I, what I did was I, I only like, I would fabricate things from scratch, but only with junk, like stuff that would going into the recycling. So that was like, that's what, I was about, that's what I was about to ask. What do you make, make them out like junk? Yeah. yeah. So like, I save a lot of weird things and I'm like, Oh, that'll make something cool one day. And I'll make something cool. Cause I've always been into like fabric, uh, like replicating props and stuff like that from like, especially star Wars crap. Um, and so there's always like these little things that I'll hold on to. I'm like, oh, that's, that'll be a cool, that piece of plastic will make something neat one day. And like, I keep, I'm not a hoarder, <laughs> but I keep weird shit like this. And, and then every once in a while I start working on a project. I'm like, oh, that plastic thing, that'll be perfect. <laughs> thing right here. And then it justifies all the, <laughs> all the hoarding. <laughs> but um, so like I decided, okay, like, okay, it's COVID. I'm not going to spend a bunch of money on supplies. I'm not going to go about to buy a bunch of expensive plastic and make a thing. So I'm just going to limit myself with stuff I have on hand and like stuff I'm going to throw away. Um, and then, you know, I just, I, I built a bunch of like spaceships and, and then like, yeah, I got like to tell stories in them and then I'll paint them and, and, and try to make it like, you know, pretty damn good. And like in, in, in scratch build modeling, we're interested in modeling. There's a, I'm not that familiar with it, but there's like a, a term of like how far away they're meant to be seen. Like a one, yeah. a two footer or five footer, like it look good from five feet away, but if you get closer, it's gonna look, you know, a little bit wonky. Like I aim for like being able to see it right up close, like really close. And like detail and stuff. The detail and like the smoothness of it. And and then I like to tell weird stories with it. Like it's usually like a ship that's like been found floating around and the crew's all dead for some reason and nobody knows why. <laughs> There's a panel blown off. There was maybe an accident, you know, like, like stuff like that, yeah. or like, like a thing that's so heavy and so, um, um, 
like it, it just looks like it would just eat through fuel and it has no real practical purpose. And it's it just like, why would anybody make that kind of a thing? And that's like part of the story I'm trying to tell in the thing. Like, thanks. Like, man, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so curious. Like, if, like, you know, if that's okay with you, I don't know. of course, totally understand. No? But if, if just for me, like, no one is going to see it, it's not going to go anywhere. But if you want to send me a couple of pictures, I'm so curious to see you. Like, sure, sure. Like, yeah, I'd love to hear know, just, you just say, for like, me. Like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because like, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Because like, it's one of those things where eventually I'm going to show people some of the stuff. I've told some friends that I'm working on this, and they're just like, "Okay, whatever." <laughs> like, they don't really understand. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it sounds weird, you know. Like, I'm like, "Yeah, I'm gluing a bunch of junk together," but it looks not like a bunch of junk glued together when you paint it and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> you know, and then I, I like I like painting. I do try to paint as much as I can, and. Uh, and then I like making practical things too. So like, you know, I'm like, that's why I say I'm a, I'm a maker because it's like, it's kind of like a, the full gamut of all kinds of stuff. Like, I just like, I like working with materials. Um, like I do all my artwork in the real world. I don't do anything on computer. I like paper. I like pencils. I like all that stuff. And that's part of the, for me, that's part of like, you know, the draw, no pun intended. Um, do you also do it like art, but apart from the ships and stuff, like, do you also do art that is more like, uh, I wouldn't say 3D, but more material, but it's not just flat paper? Yeah, I mean, those, the, 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 all the spaceships and stuff, that's all 3D stuff. Um, and then sometimes when I do paintings, I'll build out the canvas and put wood on there and, and kind of create like a, I don't know, something that I think is, like, might look more interesting than just like a rectangle or a square. And, um, and partly that's like, it comes from an inspiration. I remember like when I was younger, I can't remember this artist's name anymore. I'm so terrible because she was a really amazing artist. And she was doing stuff in the 60s and the 50s, I think. But I was in the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York one time and there was an exhibit of a bunch of her stuff. And it was all three-dimensional stuff built with like wood. Um, and I, I can't even begin to describe what it was because it was just abstract. Mm. Stuff. But very, very interesting and very textural. And she painted, would paint it all black. Okay. And it was super fascinating. And I just loved the textures and all the different shapes. And, the, the, you know, it was all about like, like light hitting it and shadows and all that kind of stuff. And I just love that concept. And so, yeah, that's kind of the idea that I work with when I'm doing that kind of thing. I'm just like, I want to break out of this canvas somehow. And I just start gluing and screwing things to it. I've done that a few times. Or like I'll, or I'll paint on wood so I can have like a wooden frame built off that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's amazing the, the access of materials people have nowadays. Like I haven't even gotten anywhere near like 3D printing, but like, because I'm like interested in a lot of like model fabricators and stuff. And I watched a lot of, I follow a lot of people that build stuff. Even people that started out just like bashing junk together have started adding 3D printing. Like, oh, I, I'm using this thing from a cassette player and this other thing from this other thing, but like I need the connection piece. So I printed out this custom made 3D piece, you know, piece to put it together. And, um, it, it's not a world I'm really like that interested in going into. Cause like, I know that to, in order to 3d print stuff, you have to work on the computer and make 3d models on the computer. And like, I'm just so not interested in doing anything yeah. more. You know, you know, you, you're into, you're into sci-fi, right? So I think yeah. you, you would appreciate this kind of stuff. I was listening to, I think, I don't remember if it was on Joe Rogan or whatever. And then there's this uh, AI expert, right? So it's mm -hmm. supposed to be a guy that is an expert about that stuff. And, Everybody has theories about AI because nobody knows, right? So nobody can. Right. So everybody just, just has theory. And the theory right. of this guy was that one day we will 3D print food and resources, you know? So you don't need any more to like go. I was like, wow, that's fucking crazy. And then he went. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? 
What could go yeah, wrong with yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, no, just just a thought to entertain, you know, like as a sci-fi. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I could see that happening if they can like start building from like a molecular scale. Sure. I mean, they're, it's amazing what they're doing with metal now, like 3D mm. printing metal. Um, that's something I didn't think that would be that easy to do, you know? Yeah. All I, I mean, I don't know, like the whole AI thing is kind of weird to me. Like, I, I don't like things that are going to put artists out of work. Honestly, like, I, I, I think we should probably create more jobs for people and less jobs for robots. And um, it's going to get used a lot, you know, as far as like creating artwork, you know, like movie posters, whatever, covers of books. There, yeah, it's, it's already, already going to take the shortcuts. Yeah, that's where yeah. they're going to take the shortcuts and just do that because they don't have to hire somebody to do it. You know, like when I was a kid, I got like side jobs doing like freelance stuff um, because I had friends who worked at like publishing companies and they needed like somebody to do, like laying out boards. And they, you know, back then they would just hire people out and you get paid like a certain amount of money. Those jobs are gone. And it's like, you know, maybe maybe we should think about that. I mean, a lot of the people that, that take all these jobs away are these like tech giant idiots anyway. And they don't really have any kind of like idea of the consequences with that, what they're doing. They don't care about the consequences because they're all like caught up in their own. Um, what's the expression? Uh, they're smelling their own farts. Yeah. yeah. They're too busy smelling their own farts and thinking they're reinventing the world when they're not really re reinventing much. And then, and then like not caring about the consequences. Like I've never been fully like on board with all the technology. I mean, I'm a sci-fi nerd, but I'm also like almost a Lodite, but not quite a Lodite. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's with that with, with that 3D print stuff, the thing that like I, again, I, I'm not a technological person, you know, I can make this Zoom thing works by miracle. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you know, like my uncle has, a, he works with some of that stuff because of work, and then uh, he has like a little one that he can use for for himself, whatever. So he, mm -hmm. he, when I need, he 3D prints me shit. So for example, I need like a piece for the the coffee machine or like a there thing with my brushes, you know. And I tell him, I want it exactly like this. You know, and then he yeah. finds something on the internet, he changes it, and then he prints like awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I would probably wind up using it for most of the time because like that's that's kind of like the thing that makes me happiest is when I see that kind of use of it. You know, like creating yeah. a practical thing that that makes life a little bit easier, or like you know making an action figure with my own face on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I probably wouldn't do that either. Yeah, and let me ask you one last thing: if if you have you know, which could be also be an advice to the younger people, you know, the next generation eventually. But if there is something that you learn or you've been told or you figured out yourself, whatever, uh, that you still use a lot, be like, oh, no, that thing, man, it helps me often. What would that be? Like uh, either a lesson or advice or something. I know exactly what it is. Um, I learned this from my uh, high school art teacher. I had a, I went to a very small high school in New Jersey. And I was lucky that there was only like 200 children in the whole high school in four grades, which is very, very small for a high school in, in the United States. I had a friend who was 5,000 children in his high school. So we had a lot of like uh, good teachers and a lot of good attention. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm dragging it out a little bit. Um, but the one thing I learned from this one teacher, um, our teacher, was little details add up to big details. If you pay attention to all the little details, they all add up to big details. And that's, I, I, I just said it the other day to one of my clients, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Little details add up to big details. If we address all these little things, the whole thing looks better. Like a process oriented kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's probably one of the main lessons I learned that I still 
like I still quote to this day. Nice, awesome. Marcus, thank you so much for your time. Really, as I said, it, it means a lot to me you know, that you, you get to talk to you, which I told you, I used to see in magazines and shit. <laughs> it's not, oh, it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. Oh, don't so it's, yeah. you know, I'm, just, I'm just a normal old dude over here, it's no biggie. Um, but I really appreciate that. I, I take that with, uh, with uh, all sincerity. You know, I, I appreciate those are very kind words. Um, but yeah, anytime, this is good. If you ever wanna um, talk more tattoo stuff, um, I like your format. Um, I like I like what I've seen of it so far, and Nick, if you ever want to, I don't know how if you ever plan on expanding conversations. Like if you're gonna like meet up with Timothy another time and talk about other stuff or not, or if you're really gonna do that, I, I'd be into it because this was a fun conversation. Absolutely. And you know, like I don't know if you know this about tattooers, but we like to tell stories. <laughs> we like to talk yeah. a lot about stuff like that. Yeah, this is called tattoo tales. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I'm with my clients, I'm like, oh, am I just talking too much right now? Like telling some stupid <laughs> stories. But like, I know that like from a, from the client's perspective, it makes the whole thing more interesting. So, and it kind of distracts from the pain a little bit when you're, you know, hearing some interesting old, like weird stories. It's, it's what makes you, it, it's what separates you from a printer. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. You know what? Like one thing that I, I did a few times, but something that I really like and enjoy because also, expand the dynamics and stuff could be nice to do it even like for example with you and tim like timothy you know together because then you know you had the conversation expand oh it's yeah nice. yeah it could be yeah because it would like you know like we would probably spark some memories in each other as we're talking you know oh yeah because yeah. like i said you know a lot of that stuff is kind of like back in the memory banks and you know i'm 55 years old now so my brain isn't as good at, at drug you know bringing out those old uh, memories as it used to be um, but they're in there. So if I just shake hard enough or something, <laughs> nice. you know, they, they kind of and, come up. and for the people, the people that would like to reach you, right? They would like to get tattooed by you. They're like, Oh, how, how do I get a hold of him? Like, what would they, what would, how could I think I the best way right now would just be to email me at, uh, Marcus Clifford Pacheco at gmail.com. So it's Marcus M-A-R-C-U-S and then Clifford C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D. And then Pacheco, P-A-C-H-E-C-O, all one word, at gmail.com. Nice. I'm gonna put the contact in the in the text of the episode anyway, so they can they can reach you up. And uh, and please send me those pictures. I'm so curious. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'll um I might even have some like in progress ones because like I try to like because I don't remember when I've done certain things because some yeah. of these projects drag out for a couple of years, you know what I mean? Cause I'll work on it and then I won't work on it for a while. And so the only way I know, like when did I work on this last is if I go through my photos and I go, Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was like six months ago that I did that last detail. Nice. So um, I might be able to cobble a few little in progress things to send you. So, um, awesome. Marcus, this was a pleasure. Same here. Touch, really, yeah. good, really good meeting you, man. Nice talking. All right. Take care. Ciao. Thank you. Bye.